Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The question we want to begin examining today is this question. Why do bad things happen? Look across the room. I know many of you are walking through some fairly deep waters. Every one of us has situations in our life that bring anxiousness and turmoil and frustration. Every day we feel the struggles and toils of life. Yet as we saw over the last three weeks, the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8 speaks of the fact that we are children of God. We're, we're no longer under condemnation. We stand before God without guilt. That we are the children of God, that we can please God, the Spirit dwells with us. So if all of these things are true, then why do bad things happen to us as God's children? I mean, of all people, you would think we should have a life of ease. And TV's popular health and wealth preachers will re regularly claim that if you just have faith, if you just claim this promise of God, you can live your best life now. But it doesn't take very long for you to realize that that's not realistic. We don't have ease in life. Even those people themselves suffer from illness and ultimately die. And the truth of scripture is that bad things will happen to you. You you will suffer in life. You will face hardship. But how is that possible since we're God's children? Doesn't, doesn't he care enough to, you know, to keep us safe and to keep us from harm and to bless us greatly? Well, Paul gives the believer hope and comfort in the answer to these questions here in this next section of chapter 8. Verses 18 through 30. Now, as we work through this, we're going to look at it as one big section that it is. We want you, as you work through Scripture yourself, to begin to see that the various texts of Scriptures don't happen in isolation. Each text is related to the other texts of Scripture and the Scripture around it. They're not isolated moralistic ditties. And so we're going to take all of it in one section, but as is typical... It's going to take us three weeks to get through this one section, right? We're going to break it down into three different parts. Today, we want to work through the first part, but we'll read all of it so you can see the overview of the whole section. Let's begin in verse number 18. We'll read through verse 30, and then we will seek to get through the very first part today. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in verse 17, we are reminded that we are children of God. And if children were heirs with him, if we endure, if we wait for him with patience and suffer with him. That is a bit of a startling statement as Paul has been working through the glorious benefits of salvation to the children of God. And, and as we work through them, we're overwhelmed by all that God has done for us. And he says, the result of this is all of this is yours if you suffer with him. What? I mean, suffering is not something I really seek for in life. I prefer ease. So why would God have us suffer? Why do we need to face suffering? Well, in this section, Paul gives us three glorious truths, which dramatically and permanently change our perspective on, tr- on trial and on suffering, if we can understand them. And we'll take one of these glorious truths each week for the next three weeks. The one we will look at today is found in verses 18 through 25. And this glorious truth is this. We can face suffering with an eternal perspective in trial because we have a glorious future. We have a glorious future. It's graduation season. And so it is typical for people to ask the graduates, what are you going to do with life? And they have to think about their future. It's kind of tough, especially on 18 year olds to do that to them, to make them have to think so hard about their future. And sometimes it doesn't look very glorious. But the reality is, as children of God, we have a glorious future. We find this in verses 18 through 25. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, all these promises of God, these great benefits of salvation are yours if you suffer with Christ. But understand in the middle of this suffering that you face, it is not worth comparing with the glory That is to be revealed in us. The word worth comparing is the idea of balancing of scales. It says the glory to come far outweighs the suffering that you face. It's not even worth comparing. It's not even a comparison. 
One man says this, we must, Paul suggests, understand that we are suffering in the balance with the glory that is the final state of every believer. And so weighty, so transcendently wonderful is this glory that suffering flies in the air as if it had no weight at all. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. That's why often I speak to people and as we discuss, even together with many of you, we've discussed the challenges that you face in your life. And we bear one another's burdens. At times we weep with one another. Try to remind us of this important fact. Often at funerals we consider the fact that the person has moved on into the afterlife. And I would propose this to you. That that is incorrect thinking. That is not the afterlife. That's the real life. This is the pre-life. It's the practice life. Because that life is glorious and eternal. This life is sin-stained and scarred and suffering-filled. And that life is not worth comparing this life to. And as you face the trials of life, we must remember that what is coming is a glorious future. And we see two proofs of this reality. Two proofs that we can hang on to to know that indeed this is true. The first proof is seen through creation. Paul takes a a bit of a turn here as he lays out what is coming and he talks about creation itself. But as he does this, he reveals that creation demonstrates there's something more to this life. As we look at the world around us and begin to understand what is happening, even creation reminds us. That we have a glorious future waiting for us. He says in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. But because of him who subjected it. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So as we look at this section, as Paul turns to the creation around us to prove we have a glorious future awaiting, we see this in three important ways. First, we see that creation is subject to futility. It says in verse 20, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's two really important phrases there. He says creation is subjected to futility. It's the idea of of aimlessness, pointlessness. This is why for those in our culture don't hold to a biblical worldview. Instead, hold to a a modern or postmodern worldview. The idea that God really doesn't exist. 
that we're just parts of creation, parts of nature itself, just happy accidents that are here. It removes every point from life. If you are simply a happy accident, you are not very happy. If, if all it is is just creation and you're just another animal, then what is the point to anything? You might as well get while you can get, because then it's all over. And as we look at creation, we see even now, perhaps this spring, you are working on your yard and you're doing your best to get it beautiful and you're planting the flowers and we're doing all of this. But even while we do it, we know November's coming and it's all going to die. It's pointless. It's aimless. It says in verse 22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And as the translators translated that phrase, they took a little bit of liberty to try and illustrate what is going on. Literally, the, the words there mean groaning and suffering in agony. They're, they're, it, it, is, it is groaning. We felt that in life. Perhaps even this morning you did that. Groaning because of everything that hurts. Suffering in absolute agony. You ever noticed that creation does not work as it's supposed to? Do you feel like the world's broken? Well, it has been subjected to futility. It wasn't willingly that this happened, but rather because of him who subjected it. What's it talking about? It's pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We know in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created everything. And the word that is repeated over and over in those, those two chapters is this. And it was good. God's creation was perfect and flawless and very good. And in the midst of that, God created man out of the dust of the ground and created woman from his rib and set them over creation itself as his representatives to rule over creation. But then Genesis 3 happens and we see man decide they were not happy with their status, but rather they wanted to be gods themselves. And so they sinned and plunged all creation into sin. And as part of the punishment in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God had created man for the purpose of ruling over creation and caring for God's creation as his representative. And his mandate to Adam in the garden was to care for the earth. But when Adam sinned, mankind was plunged into sin and all creation felt its impact. Humanity's sin marred the goodness of God's creation and creation has ever since been in a state of frustration. One man says it this way. Have you ever noticed that no matter how happy nature may seem to be, there's a kind of minor tone that runs through it. The cries of animals, 
the moaning of the sea. This is the result of the curse. Someday, the curse will be removed. Creation's broken. Even science recognizes this when they're honest with this. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. I don't pretend to be a scientist. I slept through most of those classes. But I did pick this up. Everything is moving from order to disorder. Nothing's fixing itself. We feel this in our life. Things break all the time. But the reminder of all of this is that we never sin in a vacuum. Our sins impact everything and everyone around us. Adam sinned and his sin impact, impacted the world around him. Our sin even impacts our environment. But there's a promise. And this is where the hope is seen of our glorious future. Creation will be liberated from the curse. He says at the end of verse 21 into 22, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As we'll see, redeemed man has a glorious future. And Paul's logic is that redeemed man must also have a fitting environment in which to live. And so creation itself will also experience redemption from the curse of sin. That one day as Jesus comes back. And our redemption is seen in full. Just as our sin plunged creation into corruption. So our redemption will redeem creation from that corruption. We should also note that the idea of creation being set free. Strongly suggests that the ultimate destiny of creation is not annihilation. But transformation. We're not going to live eternally on some cloud. Strumming our harps. Getting bored. Rather, we will be in God's redeemed and perfect creation. A new heaven and a new earth that is not broken. Revelation 21, John has a vision of this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
And throughout the rest of the chapter, John describes the measurements and the materials of this new amazing city and place. And then he concludes with this amazing statement in verses 22 to 27 of Revelation 21. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're reminded that the day is coming when the created order will be set free from the bondage of decay. There'll be no pain there. There'll be no sorrow, no death, no struggle. The curse in the garden was that Adam's work would now be hard. That he would have to work to eat. And it would be miserable. But the day is coming when that will be reversed and creation will work properly. Free from corruption. And it will share in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Consider some of the ramifications of this. Even marred creation declares God's incredible glory. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. As we look at creation around us and we see the various aspects of creation, we stand in absolute wonder. But even those things are marred by the fall. So I'm from out west. You guys know this. I love my mountains. I believe my mountains were caused by the flood. They are a result, a direct result of God's judgment on the world. And yet as you stand on the peak and look out, it is breathtaking. How much more creation that isn't marred by the curse? We look at what's around us and even the broken, the broken world is astounding and glorious, and beautiful. And we're reminded, this is what's broken. Imagine what's coming. As you face the struggle and the trial of your life, as you're walking through those deep waters and you wonder, God, this is hard and my life is challenging and it is broken. I just can't keep going. Look at the creation around you. And be reminded, if God is able to do this with broken creation, what will he do with perfect creation? And if he can do that with perfect creation, what more will he do with you? See, creation reminds us that we have a glorious future. When you work and you labor this week, and work is hard, it's not always enjoyable. And as this week, as you labor and you're wondering, when is this over? Be reminded 
that there is something better coming. The world works for the weekend. They count the days till they can have those few days off and not have to work. You're working for something far greater. You're working for eternity. Man marred this world. But this doesn't relieve our responsibility to care for the world. In fact, I think it elevates it. Our sin is what brought corruption to this world. And so we have a responsibility to the best that we can to care for the ramifications of what we caused. To fix the problems we have. We messed it up, so we need to care for it in this mess state. And so our role is to care for the world, to fulfill that implication, that mandate given to us in creation. And we see finally, number three, that creation longs for this liberation. Verse 19 tells us, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It says it waits for eager, with eager longing. This literally means with outstretched neck. It's like standing there. And, and looking to see if you can see it coming. The parades, you stand in the crowd and as you're waiting for the parade to start, you're craning your neck to see if you can see the beginning of it. So creation is doing and it is craning its neck. It is looking, it is longing for what? For the revealing, the, re- the revelation, the unveiling of the sons of God. For that day when Christ will return, and establish his kingdom and reveal who are his. It is longing for that day. It's coming. And we can be confident that that day is coming. Because creation reminds us of it. The second proof of the reality of our glorious future is found in verses 23 through 25. It's seen through creation, but it is also seen through our own lives. If we are willing to look as we honestly examine our lives as children of God, we discover that they serve as proof of a glorious future that is coming. Bear with me. We see this in five ways. One, we have the first fruits of the spirit. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and he serves as a first fruit of what is coming. He serves as that first signs of harvest. We understand this in our our area, those idea of first fruits, the, the first harvest that comes up that you look at, it gives an indication What kind of year are we getting? If it's pretty puny or it doesn't come, we realize it's going to be a rough year. But when those first fruits come, as we see them, we realize, oh, it's going to be a heavy year. There's a lot coming. The Holy Spirit serves as that first fruit. He is an amazing gift of God to us. Consider this. In John 14, Jesus informs his disciples that he's going to leave them and prepare a place for them. 
God himself had taken on human flesh and lived on this earth, had gathered together a group of men that he was personally discipling and grooming to advance the kingdom of God. They lived with him. They walked with him. They were with him all day, every day for three and a half years. And then towards the end, Jesus drops this bomb. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why would we be troubled, Jesus? Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way I am going. They look at each other. Say, wait, Jesus is going. What is he talking? We don't want Jesus to go. We want him to stay. Where is he going? He said, we know. Thomas has the bravery to ask the question. They're all thinking. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not. You do know him and have seen him. And they continue over this chapter to question Jesus. Jesus, what do you mean you're going? You're God in the flesh with us. This is as good as it gets. We get to be with God all the time. Have you ever thought what it'd be like to live with Jesus? There was that fad several oh, decade or two ago of what would Jesus do? That your what would Jesus do? Bracelets and headbands and T-shirts and basketballs and everything was what would. And it's a good question to ask. And the idea was, boy, if Jesus was here, we would know exactly what to do. And they continue to question Jesus and they have this legitimate concern that he's going somewhere they can't go. They have no idea what he's talking about. Later, at the time of Jesus' death to his ascension, we see confusion with the disciples. Their lives have been turned upside down. They, they thought Jesus was going to establish his earthly throne right then and there. And now in the span of a month and a half, he's been killed. He rose from the dead, but then he left them by floating up into the air. They're at a loss. Like, will Jesus forget them? He said he'd come back, but we're not really sure where he went. What is going on? Have they been living a lie? But they're reminded of the proof Jesus told them about as he continued in John 14. He said in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Here's what he's saying. When I'm gone, you're going to know that you're with the father. I'm with the father. I'm with you and you're with me and we're all a family and you have a glorious future. And here's how you're going to know because I'm sending someone to you. This divine comforter. 
The fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you, convicting you of your sin and illuminating and explaining the word of God to you and giving you the strength to face life stands as a proof that you have something even better coming. I mean, the first fruit is good. But the point of the first fruit is that something in even better harvest is coming. And the first fruit is good, so you can be confident that a good harvest is coming. But this first fruit does remind us how bad things are now. As we see how the world should be, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and convicts us of our error, and convicts us of our wrong, we're reminded, this ain't it. This world is broken. Because we can understand how amazing things will be, we understand just how bad it is now. And so we see the second way the proof of our eternal future is seen in our lives. That is, we groan inwardly. He says, not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly. These groans refer to the utterances of a person who's caught in a dreadful situation and has no immediate prospect of deliverance. It's the word that Luke used to describe the groans of the children of Israel as slaves in Egypt in Acts 7. This idea that life is incredibly hard and there doesn't seem to be a way out. And so you just groan. John MacArthur says every true believer agonizes at times over the appalling manifestations and consequences of sin in his own life, in the lives of others, and even in the natural world. Because we have the first fruits of the spirit, we are spiritually sensitized to the corruption of sin in and around us. But that, sen that, that sensitivity to how difficult life is, that this isn't it, is a sign that there's something coming. Sometimes as I speak to believers who are struggling with sin, and they even begin to question, I'm not even sure I'm a child of God because I am just struggling with this sin. I want to be quick to remind them that the fact that you are struggling with the sin is a sign of life. Because unbelievers don't struggle with sin, they glory in it. You see, that sign of groaning is a reminder of what's coming. Paul saw this. We saw this at the end of chapter seven, where Paul was saying all these good things I want to do, I don't do. And all the bad things I don't want to do, I find myself doing and I just can't get it right. And he concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And he reminds himself, it's Christ. Because something better is coming. Second Corinthians five, four tells us while we are still in this tent, in this body, we groan. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He says, listen, while we are in this body, we are going to groan. And that's okay because it reminds us that one day death is going to be swallowed up in victory. 
Psalm 38. The psalmist says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my hearts. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sight, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stands far off. You ever felt that way? Like I have to look up to see bottom. Life is miserable right now. Sometimes we feel guilty for going to the Lord that way. The psalmist reminds us that God invites us into his presence in our weakness. He doesn't want us to clean up to come. He wants to come so that he can help us. So the psalmist goes to God and you'll note he says, I am in this way because of my sin, because of my iniquity. I brought this on myself. But he concludes the psalm this way. But for you, O Lord, do I wait O Lord, my God, who will answer? For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are victorious. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who endure evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to me, O Lord. My salvation. We are reminded that the Spirit's indwelling, which results in our groaning, is a sign that something better is coming. Your suffering is a picture of what's coming. We don't groan without hope. Instead, we see the third way our glorious future is revealed in our life. We have the promise of redemption. He says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting eagerly for the day when our salvation is made real. Reminded in scripture that salvation comes in three phases. It begins with justification that declaration that you are not guilty. Your sin is forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ. But it's still here. We still struggle with it. And so begins that second part of salvation, sanctification, whereby we are being gradually conformed to the image of Christ. That daily struggle with sin that is the sign of life. But it is the sign of the third and final state glorification when one day we stand with God for all eternity and sin is gone and that adoption is official as we are children of God with him forever 
And so we can face trial because we have the promise of redemption. And we understand that a glorious future awaits us because of the fourth reason. And that is we have a family and a hope. Verse 19 says creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It says in verse 25, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. The reality is some Christians don't get along. We understand that. But despite that fact, every Sunday as we gather together, we are reminded of our glorious future. Every time we gather, it is a picture of heaven. When people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered together at the throne of God, worshiping him for all eternity in eternal bliss. This is a minute picture of what is coming. So as we sing every Sunday, we are not singing just because it's something we're supposed to do. And someone somewhere really likes singing, I guess. So here we go. We sing because it is a picture of our eternal future. And so we sing to God and to the person next to us to remind them there's something better coming. As we pray and enter into the throne room of God, we are reminded that now we do it without seeing him. But the day is coming when we will be with him for all eternity. We will enter into his throne room because of the blood of Christ. We have a family. You are not in this by yourself. One thing we like to do, especially as Americans, is pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and do our own thing. But the reality is there is a necessity for vulnerability in the family of Christ, a willingness to receive help from one another because you're not in this by yourself. And God has designed for this family to picture heaven. This is why he said, this is how all people will know if you're my disciple, by the way you love one another, because our world does not do this. Have you ever noticed that when tragedy strikes, when things happen, tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes, the groups that respond first and most effectively are Christian groups. You ever wondered why that is? Because we're different. We understand what is coming. In the present age, anyone can claim to be a Christian. But the day is coming when it will be revealed. He says, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, for the revealing of the sons of God. We're waiting for that day when it will be revealed to all that indeed we're not wasting our time. We're not crazy. We're not using religion as a crutch, but we are indeed God's people and God is coming back. And when that day comes, it'll be glorious. First John three, two tells us, beloved, we are God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21 says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am sure of this. 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So this means that we must maintain an eternal focus. We don't live for this life. We've got glory that is coming. Something far greater. This has strong implications in every area of life. It changes the way we work. Work is hard because we sinned. But we are working to demonstrate that God is glorious. And one day work won't be hard because there'll be no sin. It changes the way we serve. We don't serve others so that they'll tell us how great and kind and wonderful we are. We don't serve others to feel better about ourselves. We serve others because we are part of God's family and we demonstrate to them how great and wonderful and glorious God is. It changes the way we spend. Because God tells us where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And if our heart is here, we're going to spend for here. We're going to live for the here and now. But it is futile. It is pointless. However, if we understand that eternity is coming, we are quick and ready to invest in eternity. Because that's where our heart is. So where's your heart? It changes the way we interact with family and friends and community. It changes the way we respond to trials. We see this most clearly in the last way we have our final eternal future revealed to us, and that is we persevere. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That word patience is that word steadfast endurance. It's the same one we find in Hebrews chapter 12, where we are told to run with patience the race set before us in the middle of trials as you are enduring all that is around you as you are struggling in this race of life we are told to run with endurance how how can you do this the writer of hebrews tells us we do this by looking at eternity by looking at jesus who endured the cross for us, who despised the shame of the cross and is now set at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for us to cross the finish line so that he can present to us the crown of life and say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. And he says in verse three, we do this so that we don't grow weary. When I see a believer who is overwhelmed by life, And is filled with despair. I see a believer who has lost sight of their God. And lost sight of their king. Because when we see the king. He keeps us from being weary and fainting. You can endure the sufferings of trial. Because. You have a glorious future. This. Isn't. It. Praise the Lord. So. We must live for it. You can live for today. Or you can live for eternity. Let me give you five so what's to finish the message here today. Five things to take away. Hopefully you'll take away more. But here's five things to spur your thinking. Number one. As you face trials. Remember eternity. As the old hymn goes. Of times the day seems long. Our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain. To murmur. And despair. But Christ will soon appear to snatch his bride away. All tears forever over. 
in God's eternal day, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So in the midst of your trials, remember eternity. Number two, view creation through the lens of its coming glory. As you look at creation, let it be a reminder. Glory's coming. Number three, don't, es- don't underestimate the Holy Spirit. He's not just there to convict you of sin. That's what he does. He's not just there to comfort you. That is what he does. But he is also there to point you to something far better. Eternity's coming. Where you'll be with him forever. Number four. Remember Christ's suffering in the midst of your suffering. You have a high priest that endured sin and suffering just like you. So remember that in the midst of his suffering, he did not revile. He did not complain, but committed himself to God and God glorified him as a result. And so number five, keep an eternal perspective in trial. Keep an eternal perspective in trial. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to suffer alone, but you have promised us a glorious future. A day when it will all be over. And we will see you in your glory. So, Lord, help us today make you look as good as you really are, not to waste our suffering, but to use it for the advancement of your kingdom and the declaration of your glory. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your family. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.